Please open your Bibles to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. As you're opening your Bibles, you'll also want to grab hold of the little folder that was handed to you as you came in this afternoon and have that near at hand for note purposes. I'm going to read this entire chapter, James chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers. I'm sorry, is this too loud? It sounds loud to me for some reason. Is it loud? I'm, I'm seeing some say, okay. Some are saying yes, some are saying no. I think um, Alex said something about that last week. Let your yes be yes or your no be no. It's, it's not too loud? Okay. All right. James 3 and verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, would you please come and speak to us, even as we have just sung. 
Speak, O Lord. Speak, O Lord, to us and teach us from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are beginning today a four-part series uh, entitled Communication in Community. And we're using the book of James together with the Proverbs as our main text for what God wants to say to us. There will be extensive notes for this each week over these four weeks. You will be handed more notes to go inside of that folder that we gave to you uh, this afternoon so that by the time we're done, you'll have a complete set of notes plus a couple of attachments. Also, in connection to these messages, as we announced over the last couple of weeks, uh, there's going to be a Q&A time at the end of the teaching. You can text questions to the number that's up there, and when I'm done, uh, Alex will come up and ask me some questions that you have asked through him, and we'll see how that goes. I know, I know that some of you have heard recordings of the basic uh, teachings that we're going to be giving in these next uh, few weeks, and I don't uh, apologize for that or regret that. I think these are the type of teachings and the type of truths that need to be heard time and again until they work their way into our hearts and into our souls, and so I think it's profitable to hear them more than once. Uh, and if you have heard them before, I hope that that will not be too, uh, too much of a burden to you. The book of James is an interesting book. It was actually written by our Lord Jesus' half-brother uh, and is actually based on the Sermon on the Mount itself, as we have been studying over these recent weeks and months. So if you, were to, if you were to take the book of James and line it up right alongside of the Sermon on the Mount, you would find that there are numerous ways in which they overlap. And what this means is that the book of James is an early Christian pastoral exposition of the Sermon on the Mount. This is James's exposition of what Jesus is teaching in Matthew 5 through 7. And it's fascinating to me as I look at the book of James and I look at chapter 1 and verse 1 and I see that James is writing this book to, he calls, the 12 tribes in the dispersion. In other words, these were believers who had been dispersed, presumably from Jerusalem, and they had been scattered all over the Mediterranean world in the first century. And as James writes this pastoral letter to them, it is striking to notice what he emphasizes. There's 108 verses in the book of James. 75 of them have to do with relationships and communication. Fifty of them deal directly with communication and issues of the tongue. So what does this tell us about these early Christians who were scattered all over the known world of that time? It tells us that they were having a really hard time getting along with each other. It, it tells us that no matter where they were, the sins of the tongue followed them. That's significant. No matter where we are, no matter who we are with, sins of the tongue 
go with us. This is an ever-present problem for us as human beings. And in fact, in my ministry, for those that are unaware, I've had the privilege of being a pastor for a little more than 36 years. And a few years ago, I don't even know why I did this, but I took the time to, to estimate how many hours of counseling I have done through those 36 years. And it comes out to somewhere around 15,000 hours of counseling. And here's what I have discovered. I have discovered that in counseling, when sitting down and talking with people, believers or not, the first thing they need to know more, they need to hear from me, is they need to know more about God. I need to give them more of who God is and what God is like and how God loves them and how God is holy and how God is just and how God is fair. They need to hear more of God. That's number one. Number two, they need to hear more of the gospel. They need to know that God loved them so much that he gave his son to die for them on the cross and then that son rose from the dead and is alive today as Lord and Savior for all who believe. They need to hear more of the gospel, more of God, more of the gospel. That's number one and number two. And then what's number three? They need to know how to communicate. Time and again, whether it's marriage, whether it's racial discord, whether it's parent-child, whether it's boss-employee, time and again, no respecter of persons. It can be seasoned believers, new believers. It can be pastors, counselors, counselees, community group leaders, community group members, parents, teenagers, husbands, wives, singles, old, young, rich, poor, white, black, brown, every shade in between. We need help. We need help in knowing how to communicate with each other. I have a, I have a personally and pastorally, an ambitious goal for this series. For these four messages, my prayer is that God will not just do an individual work in some of us, but a collective, congregational, corporate work in all of us. My prayer has been that this will provide a body of teaching that will become a a reservoir from which we can draw over and over and over again to inform and transform our relationships and to give us truth to remind others of so that they can grow in their relationship. This is not just a series of messages that's kind of one and done, this is a series of messages that I pray will stay with us for the duration. That this will, this will shape the culture of our church. That this will shape the atmosphere. This will fill the atmosphere that we inhale, that we take in, that we breathe out in one another's company. May it be, Lord, that you will speak to us powerfully, powerfully in these weeks. Communication is an amazing thing, isn't it? When you, when you really stop to think about communication, there are, there are ideas, there are, there's reason, there's emotion, there's joy, there's love, there's all this stuff inside of this guy standing here. 
And through communication, it can, it can go from here through here to there, your ears, and then make its way down about 12 inches to your heart and one way or another affect you. Isn't that incredible? You don't know what I'm thinking right now, but if I chose to, I could communicate these thoughts in such a way that you understand them and either, depending on what I said, either love me or hate me. Either be blessed or be offended. Either be grieved or be overjoyed. Just from what comes out. Isn't it amazing? Many of you, I'm sure, know uh, Jane Goodall. She's the chimpanzee expert. One time I heard uh, Ms. Goodall say, what's amazing about the chimps is how much like us they are. And I remember listening and thinking, Jane, I guess so. In the same way that a 40-watt bulb is like the sun. A chimp can't take thoughts in his head, turn it into words that affect lives, either for good or for bad. There, there was something about us. We're made in the image of God. We are made like God. We have a capacity for thought and words and communication and effect. And communication then becomes a, the glue and the bond that seal all meaningful human relationships together. Or communication becomes the razor knife and the buzzsaw that separates human relationships. James makes this clear, doesn't he, in chapter 3? It can be, the tongue can be a hellish fire of death and destruction that kills people and destroys, or in the words of the proverb, it can heal and it can bring life. The power of the tongue, such a small member, and yet it controls just about everything about us. Let's not pretend as we begin here, and I have to set up our teaching with a number of preliminary thoughts here to make sure there's context so it doesn't have the neg a negative effect upon us. Let's, let's not pretend um, that somehow or other we have, um, we're doing well about this. Let's, let's acknowledge, let's assume that we're all starting from the same place, which is a place of failure. A place of failure. Look at verse 2 of chapter 3. For we all stumble in many ways. We all stumble in many ways. Talking about sins of the tongue. We all blow it. We all get it wrong. We all mess up. Verses 7 and 8. Every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. We are all coming at this from a place of failure. If you, if you could do a quick word search through everything you've ever said, everything you've ever posted on Facebook, everything you've ever tweeted, if you could do a quick word search through everything you've ever yelled or everything you've ever whispered in one person's ear behind another person's back. 
If, if you could do a word search through the entirety of your life, how much would you like to delete? Don't you wish we had the power of deletion in our lives? But we don't. We don't. I'm reminded of Isaiah the prophet who... In Isaiah 6, he had a vision of the Lord. He saw the Lord. And remember the seraphim, the angel creatures were singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And how does Isaiah respond? Woe is me. Woe is me, for I am undone. And listen to what he said. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King. Isn't it striking that a holy man, a prophet, sees, catches a glimpse of the holiness of God and his immediate response is, I've got a dirty mouth. I'm a sinner with my lips. And as a matter of fact, he says, everybody around me is too. What happens next? One of the seraphim goes to the altar and he takes a coal from the altar of sacrifice and he touches Isaiah's lips and he says, your sins have been atoned for. You are forgiven. We need to start here, folks. It is true, we all come from a place of failure when it comes to the tongue. And we can't fix it. But there is somebody who can. There is somebody who in one sense already has, whose name is Jesus. That altar that that angel took that coal from, that was a foreshadowing. That was a symbol of the altar to come, which is the cross of Jesus Christ, on which Jesus, the Prince of Glory, died for our sins. And it is through the sacrifice of Christ that, that we are cleansed. Our lips, though in one sense still dirty, are in the sight of God clean because of Christ. They've been washed clean. Understand this. Redemption in the Bible. Redemption always comes before transformation. Redemption always comes first. Before Isaiah got his communication fixed, he got his sins forgiven. Before he fixed the way he talked, God in and through Christ redeemed him from his sins. We must always keep this in mind or else this teaching will bury you with guilt and shame. It'll bury you. Because the more you hear about God's standard for communication, the more you're aware that, woe is me, I am a man with a dirty mouth. And you need to know Jesus died for your dirty mouth. Jesus died 
for every curse you've ever expressed. Jesus died for every sinful, yelling outburst of anger. Jesus died for every miscommunicated word. Jesus died for every muttered word under your breath. Jesus died for every sarcastic word. Jesus died for every cutting word. Jesus died for every malicious word. Jesus died for it all. He died for it all. And... He got his speech perfect. He never sinned with his mouth. Every single situation, every relationship, every conversation, he got it perfect. He chose the right word, the right tone, the right timing every single time. Do you know why? So that when you believe in Christ, his perfect speech could be counted as yours. His righteousness imputed to you. So that in the sight of God, you have never sinned with your tongue. Think about that. You have never sinned with your tongue, even though you sin with your tongue every day. In the sight of God, in his accounting, in his record book, in that standard that will determine heaven or hell, in that standard you are righteous before God. And so is your tongue. Redemption precedes transformation. But transformation, just because redemption comes first, doesn't mean transformation isn't important. Because it is. And in fact, in chapter 1, James tells us that our religion, verse 26 if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart and his religion is worthless. What is James saying? He is saying that the proof of whether a man is genuinely, whether a woman is genuinely, a child, a teenager is genuinely religious, believing in Christ, loving God, the proof of that will be manifested in part in his speech. And if he or she's her, if his or her tongue remains unbridled, uncontrolled, untransformed, then it is proof that the faith is a fraud. Genuine faith produces a transformed communication. Authentic faith in Christ will produce authentic transformation of life. That's what James, that's how, that, those are the stakes, if you will, that James sets on the table in front of us here. That's, that's how serious all of this is. And so, May it be that God gives us, first of all, grace to trust in the redeeming mercy of Christ, and then grace to apprehend and appropriate and apply the transforming grace of Christ, so that at the end, we will be both forgiven and transformed in our hearts, in our lives, in our tongues in our relationships. That's how important it is. All that's introduction. All right.
here's, here's what's going to happen over these four weeks. Um, we're going to go through 11 principles of communication. They really are more rules and laws than they are just principles. Uh, these are God's standards for how we are to talk and how we are to listen. And we're going to take the word communicate, and we're going to use that as our outline for this series. So each of the 11 principles will begin with the next letter of the word communicate. The reason for the tool of that word and that acrostic, quite frankly, quite honestly, is the hope that we will memorize these, that we will actually commit these to memory, that we will review them and study them so frequently and so deeply that they will leave a lasting mark on our lives. So I've done everything I can do to make it as accessible and memorizable as I can. Let's see how that works. So, 11 principles, we're going to do a grand total of one today. The first principle of communication, if you're looking at your outline there, you will, you will see a space there with a C and then a blank. The first principle of communication is chill. Chill. Or calm down, or to wax Shakespearean, compose thyself. Whatever phrase works for you, this principle must be at work in our lives. We need, in our communication, in our relationships, we need to chill. We need to calm down. There is a, there is a need right from the start to manage our emotions in such a way that they do not dominate our words or dominate our relationship. And a failure to chill pours fuel on the fires of our conflicts. James chapter 3 and verse 17 says, The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, that's the key word for this point, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. The word gentle translates a Greek word that James uses that means to be moderate or measured or mild. It's the opposite, if you see how it's used in the New Testament and other places, it's the opposite of quarrelsomeness. It's the opposite of argumentative. We are to be gentle. We are to be mild in our communication. Chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, well-known verses. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We are to be slow to anger. That means that our anger emotion is to be is to be carefully watched. There's, and, and James says there's a reason for this because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In other words, there are righteous things God wants to do in your life and in your relationships that get short-circuited when we blow a fuse. When we explode. Anger has bad fruit. But gentleness has good fruit. 
Remember Proverbs 15 and verse 1. A soft answer, you know this proverb, a soft answer turns away wrath. A soft answer, a gentle answer, a tender answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A a soft answer, a gentle answer, a chilled answer takes takes the wrath emotion out of an equation. It calms the situation. Proverbs 15 and verse 18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. The, the image, that word quiet is like, like a mom or a dad who has a, has a crying baby and, and they, they're holding the little child and they're singing and they're a little lullaby and they're talking and they're hushing and they're, they're, they're quieting the child. The proverb says that when we are slow to anger, it quiets contention. These ancient sayings are contrasting the effect of hot-tempered emotion with calm self-control. When we fail, fail to chill, fuel gets poured on the flames of conflict. But when we decide to chill, the inferno, the fire is doused. The conflict soon comes to an end. Anger is like an infectious disease. If you let out a loud, angry sneeze, someone is going to get sick with the anger virus. It's just the way it works. Anger begets anger. Intense heat causes intense quarrels. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 4, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, let all of these things be put away from you along with all malice. These are all, the words he uses are all uh, high decibel anger words. He's, He's talking about blowing up, yelling, blowing gaskets, going ballistic, slamming doors, banging things. And the apostle is telling us, stop it. Stop it. Ladies and gentlemen, yelling is not a personality thing. Angry yelling is not a personality thing. It's not a style thing. It's not a culture thing. It's it's a sin thing. It's a sin thing. Hot-headed sins are communication destroyers in our relationships. Chill. Chill. Along the way here, I'm going to... uh, wax poetic. I'm going to give you a little poetry over these next four weeks that captures each of these points. And if you look on your notes, you'll see a main point section there. And and here's the main point in poetic form. To keep from war, to keep from war in little spat, turn down the anger thermostat. To keep from war in little spat, turn down the anger thermostat. Exercise 
self-control, a spirit-given ability to restrain your emotions, restrain your words, so that you stay calm even when the storm hits. And this is to be like God, my friends. This is to be like God. Remember when Moses asked God, I want to see your glory. I want to see what you're like. And God gave him a little glimpse of his glory. And as, as God is passing by, the words are spoken about God that he is gracious and he is merciful. And then it says he is slow to anger. He is, if you will, he is chilled. He is calm. Doesn't mean God isn't angry. It just means that he doesn't express his anger in volatile, destructive, harmful ways. He is, he is a God who is measured. He, he is a God who restrains his anger. He is a God who controls his wrath. Aren't you glad he does? Imagine if for one minute, God was to stop restraining his wrath. Imagine if for one minute angry justice fell upon planet earth and everybody got what they deserved. The place would be wiped out. But God is slow to anger. God is a God whose wrath is measured and appropriate and proportionate and careful and deliberate. He is self-controlled. So, so that what we are being told to do is to be like God. We are to, to be slow to anger just like God is. Chilling is a choice. And it's a choice to be like God. That means, think back to this past week. Let me just ask, how many of you had an angry moment this past week? I just want to see if there's anybody who did. Uh, okay, is there, is there anyone who didn't? You think back to it, and you think back to how you responded in that moment, and you, you, you think back to the, the temper tantrum, you think back to the angry words, and, and what James is saying to us is that in those moments we have a choice to make. In those moments, we've got to grab hold of our own collar, we've got to seize ourselves and look straight into our own eyes and say to self, self, get a grip. Self, chill. Calm down. Compose yourself. Be like Jesus. Be like Jesus. And if we don't, then what may be a little disagreement or a little tiff will turn into a war. To, to keep from war in little spat Turn down the anger thermostat. If you respond to anger with anger, you get more anger. If you respond to anger with a calm spirit, you diffuse the anger. So how long do you think you can go without losing your temper? How long can you go before your next yelling fit? Know the, want to know the answer? As long as you choose. As long as you choose. It's always a choice. It's always a choice. You know it too, don't you? 
you're in a disagreement with somebody, there's a moment, there's a second, there's a split second on your inside where you say, I shouldn't say this, right? Don't say it, Tim. There's that, there's that moment of decision. There's that intersection where choice has to happen. When I was a teenager, my, I had an issue, serious issue with anger. I was, I was a mad kid. Um, I used to break things. I used to break things over people's heads. Uh, I love the game of ping pong. Could whoop anybody in this room in it. Oh, I think James says something about boasting in, in chapter 3. Sin of the tongue. Um, but I used to play my older brother in ping pong, and once in a while he would beat me. And when that happened, one time I remember just taking the ping pong paddle and just smashing it on his head. I had other episodes that, uh, you know, are when I see the direction and trajectory of my life, I bless God that I can't believe I'm standing here. That trajectory changed one day when a young guy, another guy in my youth group, 15-year-old named Billy, Billy walked up to me and he said, Tim, do you know that nobody likes to be around you? Do you know that because you were so mad all the time, always yelling, always upset with people, people just want to stay away? Rocked my world. I thought I was popular. I thought I was liked. I found out in that moment that my wrath, my anger was isolating me from others. And my wrath and my anger was hurting and wounding others. And I, I remember going home that evening I remember going to bed that night as a 15-year-old. I remember laying in my bed thinking about it in conversation with God and realizing this is not how I want to live my life. By the grace of God, making a choice that night that became a decisive choice for me, a life-changing choice for me. I mean, not more than 10 times since have I lost my temper. I think my wife and my kids are happy for my, my young friend. Who had the guts, had the nerve, had the courage to come up to me and tell me the truth I needed to hear. A choice had to be made. A number of years ago, back in the 90s, I was at home. It was after dinner. I got a phone call. Got a call from a man who was an older gentleman. Gentleman, I'll, I'll call him Bert. I don't think we have any Berts here. I'll call him Bert. Bert was in a panic because his wife, who I'll call Harriet, uh, was in a, in a hysterical rage, and I could hear her in the back of uh, behind him over the phone, and and I knew they'd had problems before, and I I knew it was a situation that called for action, so I said, I'll come right over, and I made sure I had a phone with me, because I thought this was going to be a 911 call. I could tell the, the level of rage and hysteria was such, and I got there, and, and I walked in, and Harriet was 
just absolutely raging, just fury pouring out of her and, and beside herself in rage, hovering and hiding behind some big plants in her house. And she continued to rage and continued to rage. And I was at a loss thinking I was going to have to really call 911. And, uh, but then the Lord just gave me a thought, something to try, and gently walked up to Harriet, who I'd known well, put my hands gently on her shoulders, looked into the eyes of this 75, 78-year-old woman, and I said, Harriet, be quiet. And within 10 seconds, she was completely still, sitting on the couch, and we were having a conversation. It was a choice. It was a choice. Chilling is a choice. Think of another time, another evening. Got a call from a frantic woman in our church. And her husband was raging in the background of the phone call. She said, it's been going on for an hour or more. And I said, okay. I hopped in the car, went over, got chin to chin with this guy. I said, stop it. And an hour-long temper tantrum ended in a matter of seconds. It was a choice. It was a choice. Sad situation. The situation was such, and I need to say this consistently throughout ministry, the situation was such where I believe she could have and should have gotten a restraining order. I pleaded with her to get a restraining order. Back in the 90s, I said, you can't. You can't stay here, but she, she wouldn't do it. And so the verbal stuff went on. But in that moment, he made the choice. He made the choice. Chilling is a choice. How long can you go until your next temper tantrum? As long as you choose. As long as you choose. Now, we're going to talk later on in this series about how the only way you're going to make the right choices is if you have the right motivations. And if your heart's in the right place and your heart's ruled by the right things, get to that in James chapter 4. But at the end of the day, we are responsible for our choices and we must make the right choices. What will we choose? Communication in many ways, begins with this chill. Just calm down. Calm down. Let us be more like God who is slow to anger. As I, as I close and we get ready for a couple of questions, I assume there are some questions. Yeah, okay. Um, let, me, let me just issue a call to mutual accountability and discipleship with regard to the things that we're talking about. In, in chapter 5 and verse 19 of James, James writes, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, 
Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. What is James saying? He is saying that communication, all the stuff he's talked about throughout this letter, communication is a community project. He is saying that we need each other's accountability. He is saying that there are going to be times when we wander from the truth, we need somebody to come to us and pull us back on the path. Brothers and sisters, these principles, these laws of Christ, these commands of Christ, we will not do them consistently unless we help each other do them consistently. We need to remind each other of these things. We need, to, we need to see a brother or sister who's not chilling and pull them aside and say, brother, sister, chill. Let me pray with you to give you a peaceful heart in the midst of your conflict. Let's walk through this together. We need to help each other. Part of what I plead with God for these weeks is that he will not just teach us things individually, as I said earlier, but will teach us these things congregationally, corporately, so that together we will walk a path of obedience and faithfulness to Him. And as a result, every life is changed. Every marriage is changed. Every parent-teen relationship is changed. All to the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father, would you, would you write these truths upon our hearts? Will you help us to conform to the image of Christ? These things are too much for us, but they're not too much for you. Please come with your grace upon us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.